So we've been in Romans. This is week number 10. Uh, And before we jump in to kind of part two of uh, last week's messages, uh, last week's message, I just want to pray for us. So Father God, we give thanks that we have uh, much to celebrate. God, we are a people who have just much to be joyful about. Uh, God, you know, uh, thankfully, uh, just the condition of every single person that's in this room. God, I just can only imagine there's a lot of people who have different stresses and anxieties and just worries about what's going on or what's maybe not going on in life. God, I just pray that uh, through your word, through your spirit, uh, you would speak to each of us today. Uh, God, you know what our greatest need is. And God, I just pray that you would meet that need. You would meet us in this very place uh, today. Uh, God, as we continue walking through uh, a very exciting but uh, somewhat challenging uh, text in Romans chapter 3, God, I pray you would just give us wisdom. I love how Scripture uh, just teaches that uh, when we need wisdom, to ask you who, who gives generously to all without finding fault. So God, this morning, would you just give us great wisdom to understand you, to know you, uh, so that we would relate and walk with you. God, if there's someone here who just has yet to begin a relationship with you, I just pray that today would be the day where they begin that journey. And uh, God, if there's folks who have been on that journey for some time, I pray God today would be a great encouragement to keep pressing on uh, and to walking with you. So Jesus, we commit ourselves to you in this place today, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so quick question, if you would. Think of um, the last thing that someone did for you that um, you really appreciated. Okay, don't overthink it, just what comes to mind. Something to, that someone did for you, uh, like for you personally, that you just walked away or when you were thinking about it, reflecting upon it, you're like, wow, I really appreciate, I genuinely appreciate what that person did, or maybe it's something to, uh, that that person said. Now, hopefully you have something in mind. I just asked the second follow-up question is, why that? Why are you thinking of that particular instance? Maybe a spouse did something for you, a friend, a coworker, uh, whatever it may be. What it, not only what is it, but why is it that you're thinking of that very thing? Now, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I'm guessing that there's a handful, probably a lot, who are thinking, you know, I'm not actually sure what nothing comes to mind. And I wonder if nothing comes to mind because we kind of operate under this principle of that was nice what they did, but I could have done it and probably could have done it a lot better. So when we think about appreciating something and someone does something, says something, sometimes our reaction can be like, yeah, that was, that was a cute attempt, but I could have done it much better. I know for me personally, I appreci- the things that I appreciate the, the most are things that I know that I could not do for myself. Is that true for you? The things that you could never do on your own, and when someone does that for you, you stand relatively amazed of, wow, I could never have known that, had that, gone there, if that person had not done whatever they did for me. I know for me, I see it every single day when I drive up to my house. My house is not my house. There is no way that I could have gotten a piece of property in the state of Massachusetts unless someone came alongside my wife and I five, six years ago and said, we, we want to help you. You can't get into a house by yourself, so we want to help you. Every day, I'm reminded, and this is a good thing. This is a good thing that, you know what, this is, this is not mine. I would not have this unless someone intentionally came alongside our family and said, I, I want to help in this way. When I consider people in this church who serve and do very, a variety of different things, I'm so thankful that they do that because I couldn't. And if they weren't, there'd be a huge void. There'd be a gaping hole. We, we appreciate that which we know we could never do on our own. Now, why I'm pressing this at the beginning is until we fully understand our predicament, with God, meaning where we are in relationship to God, until I fully understand exactly my situation is with God, 
I will not fully appreciate all that God has done for me. And I think one of the things that we're, uh, today we're just going to cover, surprise, just a few more verses in Romans chapter 3. I'm okay with just doing a couple verses right now because uh, according to some really great scholars like Martin Luther, these few verses are the most key important verses in all of Scripture. So I think for us it's important that we just sit in this section for a time. So as we're going through these few verses in Romans chapter 3, unless I really understand the backdrop of what happened in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, where it starts off by saying the the wrath of God has been revealed all the way up to Romans chapter 3 verse 20, unless I really get the situation I'm in because of who I am and because of who God is, I will not value and appreciate and comprehend or understand what God has done. How many people have ever called AAA? Okay. How many people call AAA every day? Anyone? Four times? Really? Wow, that is good. Good tidbit to know. That's not in the, certainly that's in the fine print somewhere. Let it be known. You can only call AAA four times a year before it's extra. But point being, it's a good chance no one's calling AAA every single day. I ran out of gas. I locked my keys in the car. This won't, like we don't do that. And I think what happens because we don't fully understand who we are, therefore we don't completely understand and appreciate who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Jesus, at some level, just becomes the AAA guy. When I get stuck, when I can't get started, when I've lost something, I call upon Jesus. It makes sense. He's the guy who fixes everything. But when I don't need fixing, I don't go to him. Jesus, the Son of God, who came did not come so that we would see him or understand him as the AAA guy. When I fully understand who I am and who God is, then I will begin to just be so blown away and blessed that because of Jesus, my standing, my predicament with God has changed. Meaning I no longer am under or face the wrath of God because of what Jesus has done. So if you have a Bible, we'll put it up on the screen, but if you have a Bible and want to follow along, this is Romans chapter 3. But now, verse 21, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Last week, we focused on what was going to be seven, but I stopped at six, what I just called crucial truths in these few verses. Now, if you have um, a bulletin, uh, I've got a sheet that lists all seven truths that are coming from these few verses. Uh, And the first six were simply, number one was a source of righteousness, is rooted in God, meaning I can't boast before God. Righteousness is rooted in God and it's coming from God. Number two was the righteousness of God comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. I can't perform for it. I can't work for it. It comes through placing faith in Jesus. Number three, the righteousness of God is for all, is for all who believe, not just have this kind of loosey-goosey belief in God, but have a conviction, have a firm faith, or belief in Jesus, who he is and what he's done. Number four, all have sinned and fall short. We all need God's righteousness because all have sinned and fallen short. Number five, to those who believe, okay, all are justified. I love this picture of justification is I'm not growing in righteousness. I'm not trying to figure out how to be righteous. If I place my faith in Jesus, I am declared righteous as if I had never sinned before. Why? Because Jesus is righteous. Number six, all of this is by the grace of God. That is a powerful transformational truth. All of this is not because God looked at me and said, wow, what an amazing man or woman you are. I'm going to do this for you. 
all of this, despite us being sinners, rebelling against God, God demonstrates, reveals, provides a righteousness for us by his grace. Now, today, we're going to pick up at number seven, and the seventh truth, as I've written down, written down is Jesus Christ is the Redeemer who brings redemption. Now, if you were to look at verse 24 again, uh, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The seventh and very important truth, Jesus Christ is the Redeemer. Okay, so he's not just a Redeemer by title, he's a Redeemer by function. He's a Redeemer who redeems. There's lots of people who have titles, lots of kings, but they don't act very kingly. Lots of people who have a title of maybe a husband or a wife, but they don't act like a husband or a wife. Jesus is a redeemer who functionally redeems. Now, I know redemption is not like part of our modern-day vernacular. It's, we don't walk around talking about these, this idea of being redeemed or redemption. How many people ever sold something in a pawn shop? All you, no one? In all your AAA experiences, never had to go to a pawn shop to, all right. Well, neither have I. <laughs> so this is not going to really work. But, um, but the idea behind a pawn shop is simply if you need cash and you have something of monetary value, you go to the pawn shop and say, I'm going to give you my watch, but I want you to hold my watch and the owner of the pawn shop will agree to a set time, whether it's a week, whether it's two weeks, whether it's two months. There's an agreement of how long he will hold it before he's got permission to sell it. Now, I have that set time period to, if I want that back, if I want that item, whether it's a watch or whatever it might be, a family heirloom, I have that set time to go get money so I can redeem the very thing that I had to sell. Okay? So when I collect the money, and there's always an interest charge, uh, and go and pay the pawn shop owner, I can get back, I can redeem back what I had given away. Okay, so pawn shop, that's one way of understanding redemption. Now, at least in the first century, people would have understood redemption through really one primary way, through slavery. Now, in the first century, there was a few ways, three in particular, that you would fall into slavery. Slavery in first century looked nothing like 19th, 20th century slavery, okay? Or 16th, 17th, 18th century slavery, actually. Uh, what it would take to become a slave is if your country was defeated by war, you were taken as a captive of war. You would become a slave of that country. If a, a raiding party came into your town, to your village, completely took it over and took you as part of their uh, raiding party collection, as it were. You would become a slave of whoever raided that area. The predominant, if you remember, this is 10 weeks ago now, I realize, but 10 weeks ago, there's roughly over a million people who are living in Rome. Over 500,000 people were in slavery. Over half of Rome was enslaved. And why they were enslaved is because they didn't have chapter 11, they didn't have chapter 13, where if you just, you are so indebted, you couldn't just throw your hands up and say, chapter 11, I, I can't pay it back. It didn't work like that. What would happen is, I don't have the money, but I'll sell myself. And if it's a big debt, I'll probably have to sell myself along with my entire family. Now, how redemption would work Say you got a really nice cousin named Jack. Jack is a pretty wealthy guy, and he, he happens to like you. He hears, he catches wind that his buddy, his cousin, is now enslaved to whoever owns him, whoever he was indebted to. So Jack, this great cousin, comes along, talks to the owner, and says, what is your price? He says, my price is X amount of dollars. Jack gets the money and says, here is the money. This man is now redeemed, meaning this man is set free. And that's the big point of what I want us to understand about Jesus is redeemer who brings redemption. Redemption means I am set free. What Jesus has done is he has set me free. Now, some of us might be thinking, probably, I'm not a slave. 
Like, I don't need to be set free from anything. I'm not in bondage to anything. Jesus, interesting enough, was having this conversation with the Pharisees talking about how they were enslaved. They were in bondage. They're like, we're Abraham's kids. We are not in bondage. We are free men. And I love Jesus' response in John chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Jesus is a redeemer who redeems, meaning because all of us have sinned, that's what Paul said in Romans 3.23, because everyone has sinned, everyone is a slave to sin. Because everyone is a slave to sin, we need a redeemer who functionally can redeem us. And this is what Jesus does when it says in verse 24, Jesus Christ is a redeemer, provides redemption. He's not just a redeemer, but he redeems each of us by paying the redemption price, which was his life. This is a great picture of redemption. Jesus does for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's kind of the heart of Redemption is I can't save myself. I can't get myself out of this debt. I can't get myself out of this situation. So Jesus does for us what we could not do for ourselves. He redeems us. If a slave could, you know, get himself out of that situation, he wouldn't be a slave. He needs a redeemer. Now, that's the seventh truth, is that Jesus is a redeemer who redeems. I had two questions that I wanted to ask before I moved on to verse 25 and 26. And the two questions really are this. Number one is, what does a redeemed man or woman look like? If you are redeemed, you've met the Redeemer and Jesus has redeemed you, meaning set you free, what do you look like? Now, I struck out with my last question about the pawn shop. How many people have seen Les Mis? All right, thank you. Whether in the movies with Liam Neeson did a great job uh, as a musical, uh, Les Mis is, or read the book, uh, is a phenomenal portrayal of what a man who has been redeemed looks like. Wanted to read a very quick excerpt of book, Les Mis. And I won't even take the time to explain the whole story, but how free out of jail. And he comes and he finds uh, safety, refuge in the home of a bishop. But in the middle of the night, his money, he decides to bishop's home with what happens. It's going in and out. Sorry about that. How's that? Good. This is what it says. Silence, demanded the officer. Monsignor, uh, the bishop, stepped forward as quickly as his advanced age would allow, and he spoke before the officer could continue. Oh, here you are, he exclaimed, looking at Jean Valjean. I'm so glad to see you. I can't believe you forgot the candlesticks, because he had taken some things. I can't believe you forgot the candlesticks. They are made of pure silver as well. Surely you could sell them for more than 200 francs. Please take them with the forks and spoons I gave you. With his eyes now wide open, Valjean stared at the honorable bishop with an expression of astonishment that no human tongue could possibly describe. That's not how... ...and ready to faint. The bishop leaned closely, meaning the in his... This man has not stolen anything from me. I've given him everything. So the police go away. Now it's just the bishop and Jean Valjean. By this point, Valjean looked like a man ready to faint. The bishop leaned closely toward him and said in a quiet voice, Do not forget. Never forget that you have promised to use this silver to become an honest man. Valjean, who had no recollection of ever having promised anything, remained silent. Yet the bishop had stressed each and every word as he had uttered them. He then resumed in a very somber tone, Jean Valjean, my brother, 
You no longer belong to evil, but to good. I have bought your soul from you. I take it back from evil thoughts and deeds and the spirit of hell, and I give it to God. When I watch that movie, it's, I tear up when I watch the transformation of Jean Valjean. His point of redemption, of being bought back and set free, was right then and there. And the rest of the story is a man who lived as if he was free. And so the answer to the question is, what does a redeemed person look like? He looks like a person who is free. You might be thinking, well, okay, great. What does a free man look like? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16 says this, Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. What a great challenge. Live as free men, but don't use your freedom for a way or an excuse for sin or for evil. A free man does not have the shackles of sin on him anymore. Rather, I'm free just to live in joy. I'm free to live in peace. I'm free to live in just perfect harmony with God. I don't have to have the shackles of sin and anxiety and fear back on. Why? Because I've been redeemed from all of those things. Well, if we've been freed, a simple question is, why do I put the shackles back on? And I think what Paul is teaching here is a pretty simple principle, and Peter reiterates this here. Live as servants of God. When I get confused who I serve, when I've lost sight of who I'm serving, I start serving myself. The shackles are back on when I start serving myself. But when I realize that I'm not confused by who I serve, I serve the one who redeemed me. I serve God. I'm known, recognized, identified as a servant of God. Then things like serving sin or serving myself is at best a distant memory. The question was, what does a redeemed man look like? He looks like a free man. I'm not talking about a goofy guy walking around with a goofy smile on his face. It's a man or woman who just walks around understanding contentment, understanding peace, understanding joy. Now, a second question, and this is going to be a really, really tough one, is how do I grow in redemption? Meaning, how do I grow in looking more and more like I've actually been redeemed? I'm redeemed once, so I don't want to imply that I'm growing in Jesus redeeming me more. But I can grow in actually looking more like a redeemed man or woman. Now, this is the tough question. How you answer this is going to determine whether or not you're going to grow and looking like a redeemed person? This is the hard question. Was there anything about me worth redeeming? Just sit with that for a second. Was there, when you consider you, was there anything about you that was worth redeeming? If you answer yes, then your redemption was based upon your merit, not grace. If there was something within ourselves some beauty, some characteristic trait where God looked and said, yes, that person has this. I'm going to redeem them because of that. God is now obligated to redeem because of some inherent quality you have. So it's no longer grace. If you answer no, that there is nothing worth in me, there's nothing worth redeeming, then you begin to understand, but he redeemed me anyways. I grow in humility. I grow in gratitude towards what God did not have to do, but what God chose to do. I like how C.S. Lewis said this. Non-Christians seem to think that the incarnation implies some particular merit or excellence in humanity. But of course, it implies just the reverse, a particular demerit and depravity. No creature that deserved redemption would need to be redeemed. That makes sense? No creature that deserved redemption would need to be redeemed. He goes on to say, They that are whole need not the physician. Christ died for men precisely because men are not worth dying for to make them worth it. 
If I answer yes, I've nullified grace. But if I answer no, I now am growing in humility. There is nothing that God looked and said, that Michael Davis, I'm going to redeem him. I can't wait for him to get into heaven. It's going to be so much brighter. That's not how it worked. There was nothing inherently in me, around me, with me, where God said, he's redeemable. But he chose in his son to redeem me. Knowing that stirs in me just humility and gratitude rather than a hard heart and a proud heart. Now, we're going to go, we're just going to do two more verses. Now, the two verses are some of the most theologically challenging verses, I think, in all of Scripture. Because it asks the question, if Jesus, if God has provided a righteousness for all of mankind, everyone here, there's two questions that we need to have an answer to of why did he do it and how did he do it? Okay, so these are the two questions, the remaining part of our time. I'm going to focus on why did God do all of this, meaning provide righteousness, and specifically, this is Romans chapter 3, verse 25 through 26. God presented him, this is answering the how and the why. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Okay, kind of getting to the why. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand, meaning before Jesus, unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The very quick answer for the why is why did God do all of this? To demonstrate that he's a just God. Answer of how did, how did God do this? He presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, if you're listening in the first century, the big question that you're going to be wondering, how is it possible that God can just declare unrighteous people righteous? How is that fair? How is that just that God can look at an unrighteous person and just declare them righteous? Now, maybe think about it this way. Hopefully this is helpful. If God wants to forgive everyone, why doesn't he just like wave his divine hand and say, you're all forgiven? Why doesn't he just do that? If you answer, well, that's okay for God to do, what did God ultimately say about sin? He validated sin, almost accept sin. I forgive you. It's okay, done, because ultimately I'm just going to forgive you. If God just forgave and did nothing about the sin, would any of us say, well, that's just? Can you imagine if a crime was committed against you? Pick your horrific crime. And you go to court and the judge says, you're forgiven. And you're sitting there thinking, what? You mean he gets off? There's no punishment? There's no time? There's no fee? There's no fine? There's nothing? We understand that in our current it would be absolutely wrong to do. We would say of the judge who did that, that's unjust. So it would be not just of God just to say, well, you know what? You're all sinners. You all need forgiveness. So I'm going to breathe just forgiveness all over you, and you're all forgiven. God didn't do that because he would be seen as unjust. So if God is going to be just, sin needs to be forgiven, but more than that, sin needs to be punished. And so this is, this is why Romans 3 is so incredible, is because Paul is communicating that when we look at the cross, when we look at Jesus, that is the ultimate display of the justice of God. Not only the love of God, but the justice of God. I think I read this quote probably six, seven weeks ago, but it's a quote from uh, Dr. Carson, and he said this, Do you want to see the greatest evidence of the love of God? Go to the cross. Do you want to see the greatest evidence of the justice of God? Go to the cross. It's where wrath and mercy meet. Holiness and peace kiss each other. The climax of redemptive history is 
the cross. So when I look at the cross, I see an incredible demonstration of the justice of God, meaning he is not condoning sin, he punishes sin on the cross. And the second thing is, God is also the one who justifies sinners. So he's not only just, but through the cross, he justifies sinful people. That's why Paul said, God is the one who is just and also justifies those who have faith. That's what, or that's, I'm sorry, that is specifically the why. Why did God do all of this? Because he didn't want anyone in humanity to ever accuse him of being an unjust God. So I can't look at God and say, well, that's just not fair. Because God would say, have you seen the cross? My justice is perfectly displayed on the cross. Now, I've already alluded to the how. How did God do this? Like, how is God's justice demonstrated? And Paul has this word or phrase, sacrifice of atonement. Bible language, maybe Christian language, we don't walk around talking about the sacrifice of atonement. Again, it's kind of a word that is lost, unfortunately, its meaning. Now, this is going to be, I'm going to ask you to just bear with me and stick with me. And I, my challenge to you is if you get this next section, the sacrifice of atonement, if we get exactly what God did for us, there will be a transformation. I will grow from just appreciating what God has done, and I will grow in being transformed by what God has done. Sacrifice of atonement. There's two key words that this phrase ultimately means. So when you translate, some of your Bibles might say the word propitiation. Okay, I'll put it up on the screen. It's a little bit hard to spell, but write this word down, propitiation. The second word that this uh, sacrifice of atonement speaks to is expitiation. Okay, so we've got two kind of weird words, not sure what they mean, but we've got propitiation and expitiation. That's the phrase sacrifice of atonement. Okay, I'm going to read something here. The question is, what does propitiation actually mean? Okay, propitiation means to satisfy the demands of God's wrath. Thus, what Jesus did on the cross completely satisfied the wrath of God towards sinners. Thursday night, LeBron James went back to Cleveland. Okay? It would have been very satisfying to the city of Cleveland if LeBron James, when he went up for dunk, hit his head, cracked his skull open, broke every bone in his body. There was so much venom and vengeance in that arena. I was not there, but it was incredible of how much they wanted to see this man fail. They wanted to see this man get hurt. They wanted to see him just utterly, they would have been satisfied if something bad had happened to LeBron. I mean, the police detail that was on the game that night was, was tripled because there was fear that someone would do something to get him back. When I talk about, when the Bible talks about propitiation, satisfying the wrath of God. I don't want it to be like God is Cleveland, okay? Where God is in heaven, and he's just smiling. He's like, yeah, I can't wait to give it to him. Like, I, I just can't wait to pour it all out on Jesus. That's not what satisfaction means. It means that when God is, when propitiation speaks to the wrath that God had for us is completely satisfied in what Jesus has done. Okay? Propitiation is the act by which someone becomes propitious, meaning someone becomes favorable. Okay? If you're familiar at all with Greek mythology or just pagan deities, they were seen as very like whimsical, kind of just, we're not sure what the gods are going to do today, and so I'm going to be going on a boat ride, and uh, I hope Neptune, I hope he's going to be favorable towards me. So I will make a sacrifice to the god, small g, of the sea named Neptune. And hopefully my sacrifice will propitiate Neptune. Meaning it will satisfy him enough where I will have a smooth boat ride. But if I go along and my boat, you know, gets a hole in it, it drowns and I die, clearly my sacrifice was not propitious enough to propitiate the small g god 
Neptune. Now, the huge, huge difference between pagan Greek mythology understanding of propitiation is the human being offers a propitious sacrifice to appease the God, hopefully to find favor with that God. I'm doing something and hopefully to find favor with the God. Now, what the Bible teaches about propitiation, please stick with me, is this. God the Father sets forth Jesus as the propitious sacrifice in order to make himself favorable towards those who believe. The simplest way that I can say this is we are saved by God from God. When we look at the sacrifice of atonement, what God has done is God has saved us from him. I want, hopefully this is going to sink in and you're going to be like, wow, this is what God has done for me. I deserved his full weight, his full wrath, and what God has done in Jesus Christ, what Jesus has done is satisfied the full weight, full wrath of God. Another author who writes on this, uh, Jerry Bridges says this, I believe a word that forcefully captures the essence of Jesus's work of propitiation is the word exhausted. Jesus exhausted the wrath of God. It was not merely deflected or prevented from reaching us. It was exhausted. Jesus bore the full unmitigated brunt of it. God's wrath against sin was unleashed in all its fury on his beloved son. He held nothing back. Christ exhausted the cup of God's wrath. For all who trust in him, there is nothing more in the cup. It's empty. That is why when I consider what Jesus has done, a redeemer who is redeemed, he bore the full weight of God's wrath. Why? So that you would never have to. That those who put their hope and faith in Jesus would never have to taste an ounce of what was in God's cup of wrath. That is propitiation. Now, some of you are like, well, why does God need to be propitiated? Did you know that if there was no sin, there would be no wrath? The only reason God needs to be propitiated is because sin is that offensive to God. It's an affront to a holy God. All of my sin is first and foremost most offensive to God. That's what the Bible teaches. So why God needs to be propitiated, where we need we're not in good standing with God because of sin. The only reason there's wrath is because there's sin. Where there is no sin, there's no need for wrath. That's propitiation. Now, the second thing of sacrifice of atonement is expitiation. Okay? This is not just the flip side of this, but what that word means. If God just covered, I mean, if Jesus just paid the penalty for our sin, okay, the bore the full weight of God's wrath, but did nothing with our sin, what good is that? So what propitiation means, God is completely satisfied in what Jesus has done. And what expitiation, this is part of the atonement, speaks to is Jesus completely took my sin away from me. Does that make sense? Propitiation, the wrath of God is completely satisfied in Jesus expitiation, what God has, what Jesus has done, he's taken my sin away from me completely. Isn't that amazing? In one act, what Jesus does on the cross satisfies the full wrath of God, and he takes my sin away from him and puts it on himself. That's amazing. That is, when you see this phrase, atonement, sacrifice of atonement, that's exactly what, what Jesus has done. I'm not left in my sin anymore. Why? Because Jesus has fully taken my sin from me. Luther called this the double transfer. Jesus' righteousness is transferred to me, and my sin is transferred to Jesus. I win. I get the righteousness of Jesus, and my sin is taken away. Now, I want to finish with this. 
This is, I hope that at some level as you're sitting with this, I realize this is kind of heavy maybe. Big words getting thrown around. I hope your understanding and depth of knowledge and appreciation for what Jesus did for you will begin to transform you in new ways. Okay, so this is my closing, closing question. If I have been declared righteous, meaning I've accepted Jesus by faith, I've received him. If I've accepted him and God has justified me, meaning declared me completely righteous, why on earth do I continue to do unrighteous things? Ever wonder that? Why do I continue to sin? This is the question. If I'm declared righteous, God looks at me and says, righteousness of Jesus imputed to you, covers you. It's as if you've never sinned before. If that's true, and that's what the Bible teaches about justification, why on earth do I continue to do unrighteous things? Is there, you don't have to raise your hands on this one, but is there anyone who would say, yeah, I'm, I'm done doing unrighteous things. I'm completely righteous. I don't think any of us would be that arrogant or boastful or prideful to say we still don't sin. So this is a big one. Why do I continue to sin if I've still, if I've already received Jesus? And one of the most helpful things to me in understanding this question along my journey is just knowing this very simple truth. I don't have to sin. I don't know if you knew that, but you don't have to sin. Sin is a choice. No one's making me. No one's forcing me. I get that there's temptation. But at the end of the day, I choose to sin. Having this simple knowledge of, you know what? I don't have to sin. Helps me understand, you know what? Then why am I continuing to choose something that is completely not true of who I am? The second that God declared you righteous, meaning just, at that very moment in time, whether it was yesterday, 10 years ago, whenever it was, God began a work in you called sanctification. God's work in you called sanctification means he's making you look more and more like Jesus. So, finish with a very quick but short list. If I've been declared righteous... Why do I continue to do unrighteous things? I don't want to do that anymore. How do I grow into that which I have already been declared as true? Okay, and by the way, just as a very quick side note, if you don't believe that in Christ you have been declared completely righteous without sin, you will continue to try to perform to get that righteousness that you already have. I really hope if you're a Christian and trusted Jesus, you would walk out of here saying, I have been declared completely just, not because of what I did, but because of what Jesus did. So how can I grow into that which has already been declared of me, meaning I'm righteous? I'm going to give you, I think, four things, and I'm going to fly through this. Number one, believe you are who God says you are. If God's declared me to be righteous because of faith in Christ, then my first step in growing in that righteousness is believing, having faith in who God says I am. It's so easy for me to believe anyone and everything else about me except what God has declared me to be. If God has declared me to be righteous, then believe you are who God says you are. Are. Number two. Okay, number one is believe you are who God says you are. Okay, number two is remember who you were. Okay, believe you're righteous. God says you're righteous. Know that's true of you. You're not trying to still figure it out or find it or earn it or perform for it. You are righteous. Number two, though, remember who you were. Paul, the Apostle Paul, really got this. At the end of his life, what he says about himself in 1 Timothy 1.15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. 
Paul believed that he was declared righteous, but he never forgot who he was. Our problem is, as we grow, we start becoming more impressed with who we are. Well, I'm going to church, and I'm giving money, and I'm serving, and I'm reading my Bible. I'm actually developing quite a spiritual resume. You might be impressed yourself. I, I need to live and operate in who God's declared me to be, to righteous, but I can't ever forget what a wretched, sinner, awful man that I was. If I forget that, I'll start growing so far away from how great my Savior is. I shared this quote with you a few weeks back from the gentleman who wrote the song Amazing Grace, but towards the end of his life, John Newton said this, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner, that Jesus Christ is a great Savior. If I remember who I was, my confession will be, I've got a great Savior because I'm a great sinner. Number three, learn to identify and reject functional saviors in your life. How do I know what a functional savior is in my life? Answer this question, okay? It's a fill in the blank. If I only had this or maybe that or them, then I would be this. How you fill in the blank there? If I only had this, maybe that job, that career, this money, that relationship, that spouse, that car, that home, that vacation, if I only had this or that, or maybe it's a person, then I would be what? I would be content. I would be happy. I wouldn't have worry or anxiety. If I only had this, then I would have this. Whatever you filled in the blank with, that is your functional savior. If I'm going to grow in righteousness, I don't have a functional Savior. I have one Savior. Meaning, if I have Jesus, I have everything. I don't need anything else. I don't need my career to give me status. I don't need a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a husband, or a wife to give me significance or value or worth. That's a functional Savior. If I'm going to grow in righteousness, I'm going to identify and then crush my functional saviors. Jesus is Savior, capital S. Number one, believe you are who God says you are. Number two, remember who you were. If I remember that, I will remember what God has done. Number three, learn to identify and reject functional saviors uh, in your life. Number four is live by faith, not by flesh. Galatians uh, chapter 2 says this, I love this. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. I just love this picture. If I'm going to grow in righteousness, I'm done living for the flesh. I'm done living for whatever pleases me. I'm done living for whatever makes much of me. I'm done living with this attitude of it's about me, it's for me. I'm just done. I've died to me. When I met Jesus, I died. And now I am living for him, with him, and through him. That's number four. I live by faith in Jesus, not by flesh. And the very last one is this, and obviously this is not an exhaustive list, but number five just simply says this, submit to God's work of sanctification. Meaning, I believe that God has declared me just. God has declared me righteous. But I also believe that the Bible, Paul, makes crystal clear in the New Testament, that when I was declared righteous, God began a work in me to make me more and more like his son Jesus. I'm declared righteous in God's eyes, but now, until I meet God face to face, it is a journey of growing in the righteousness of how God sees me. And the three ways that I specifically know how to grow in that righteousness is Scripture, if I'm not in God's word daily, 
my process of being sanctified is dramatically slowed down. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, all scripture is God-breathed, it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and what? Training in righteousness. I need God's word in me. I need God's word speaking to me so that I can continue to be trained in what I've already been declared to be, a righteous one. I grow in this sanctification through Scripture, through the Spirit of God at work in my life. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks when we hit Romans 8. Okay, that's a lie when a few months when we hit Romans 8. And this is a key one, especially for our community. I, I grow in sanctification through Scripture, through the Spirit of God at work in my life, and through you, the saints. I cannot grow to look and be more like Christ locked up by myself, in my own room, doing my own thing. I need you in my life to challenge me, to love me, to work with me, to be gracious towards me. And by the way, you need me. We need each other. That's why life groups, we push so hard. Get in a life group so you can grow together and learn together and love together and serve together so we can be sanctified together. It's a hard question of, if I've been declared righteous, why do I do unrighteous things? I just want you to, as you would go from here, know that you don't have to anymore. God's desire and his plan is for you now to grow in the righteousness that he has granted us and given us, declared us to be in his son, Jesus. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. I want us to spend some time praying before you'd come up for communion. And what I, all I really want you to do is just respond. However God has been, whatever he's been laying on, sorry, your heart, whatever he's been speaking to you about today, guarantee there might be one, if not more, who you're hearing all of these things about Jesus making us right with God. If you're not right with God, and you know that your works towards God is not sufficient, then place your faith and trust in Jesus and be declared righteous today. Some of you, a lot of you have already done that. Now your process is to grow into who God's already declared you to be. And maybe you've got some functional saviors in your life who are killing you. Today, kill them. Obviously, I'm being tongue-in-cheek when I say that, but I'm being also deadly serious when I say if I have functional saviors, meaning things in my life that I think will do for me what God or Jesus is not, Those things are ultimately killing me.